My name is Ed Wilmington, and I'm the uh, director of the Fred Bach Institute of Music, which is part of the Brehm Center for Worship Theology Arts at Fuller Seminary, and I'm also Fuller Seminary's composer in residence. It's a privilege for my wife, Mary Lou, and I to be a part of this unexpected family known as Lake Avenue. I'd like to invite you to stand, please, as we honor the reading of the Word of God. Today our reading is found in the last chapter of John 21, verses 1 through 6, 15 through 19. Afterward, Jesus appeared to his disciples by the Sea of Galilee. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas, also known as Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. When they did, they were unable to haul in the net because of the large number of fish. And verse 19, when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? And he said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. Very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. We rejoice together because this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning, Lake Avenue. By the way, if you play this backwards, that's where we'll hear your song. You play the, just kidding. We're in this wonderful period of time between Easter and Pentecost. And this is a very important time, not only for the Christian church, but also for the Jewish people, because there were 50 days that followed after Passover where the Jews were in preparation. They had completed this wonderful annual celebration of the uh, sacrifice of the lamb for the sake of the sins of the Jewish people. Uh, Passover celebrated, as you know, the wonderful deliverance of the people of God out of bondage in Egypt. Uh, they were passed over when the death angel showed up in Egypt to take the firstborn of Egyptians. They passed over uh, the Red Sea and were on their way to the Promised Land. It's during this passing over and passing through that the law is given on Mount Sinai. And so it's a very important time in the history of the Jewish people to celebrate the nature of God. And it was a foreshadowing of the fact that one day a Messiah would come who would be the lamb slain from the foundation of time. And so they were looking forward as they celebrated that particular aspect of their promise that was throughout the word of God, particularly in the, in the book of Isaiah, where so much is written about the nature of the suffering Messiah, whose stripes would be that which would heal us, who would give his life for us. 
And then at the other end is Pentecost. 50 days later, it's seven sevens, by the way, plus one. Uh, seven is a very important number within the Jewish you know, numerological traditions. It represented perfection. And so they were in the process of perfecting what they had experienced at Pesach, at Passover, as they anticipated Pentecost. And Pentecost essentially was, again, another celebration of promise. The winter wheat had come in, the winter corn crops had come in, and so they were acknowledging how much they depended upon God for their sustenance. And so at Pentecost, it would be the celebration of the first harvest. And one of the things they would do is anticipate God's abundance to them by trying to figure out what about 10% of the harvest would be, and then they would offer that up to God. And often within the Pentecost celebration, they would bring into the temple or into the various places of worship where they were scattered abroad, two little loaves that represented the first fruits of the promise of God. A little bit later in Jewish tradition, some of the rabbinics would decide that Pentecost would also be a good opportunity to celebrate the giving of the law on Mount Sinai. There's some debate that the people of Israel from the time they left Egypt, crossed the Red Sea, and got to Mount Sinai was about 50 days approximately. We don't know that for sure. Again, this is part of Jewish tradition that's very hard to verify. But they celebrated the giving of the law. And what we discover is that when Jesus comes on the scene as the promised Messiah out of Isaiah's teaching, he would be in the process of not doing away with the law, but completing and fulfilling the law. As a matter of fact, in one of the earliest accounts of his comprehensive teaching of what he was coming to do in Matthew chapter 5, I believe it's the 18th verse, he would say to the people that day, don't think I've come to destroy the law. That's not my purpose in coming. You see, the people were hoping for a conquering king-like Messiah. They were looking for a David, not a lamb. They were hoping that when the Messiah came, that he essentially would overturn the Roman Empire, set up his own kingdom, and also deal with a lot of the abuses that were a part of the, uh, the, the law at that particular time. The law had been added to and added to and added to, and now rather being a celebration of God's promises to the people of Israel, it was a daily burden to them. And so they were looking for a Messiah to get them out from Roman bondage, but also get them out from under the law. And Jesus has to say right up front, don't think that I've come to do away with the law. That's not my purpose. I've come to fulfill the law. And during these 50 days, we see the culmination of that Matthew 5:18 promise in terms of his mission. It starts with their celebration of Passover, where Jesus changes everything. The celebration elements are changed from a celebration of what was to a celebration of who is. Did you catch that? From a celebration of what was and thanksgiving to God, they raised their Ebenezers, they were giving praise to God through the celebrations of these various elements that are used in the Passover, but Jesus transforms it. And at the beginning of this 50-day period, approaching Pentecost, what he says is, you need to understand now that the bread really represents my body, which is given for you. From this point on, every time you do this, think of me. I love the way Paul kind of expands on that in 1 Corinthians. And often when we celebrate, and usually the first Sunday of the month here at Lake, we have communion. Uh, we had communion during the Easter celebrations, and so we will have communion again at the first of next month. But we have this understanding, as Jesus says, it's my body given for you. One of the things that would happen in terms of the sacrificial activity on Passover on Pesach was that a lamb would give its body. But Jesus said, it's no longer about an it, it's about a me. It's no longer about that, it's about me in terms of my sacrifice for you. And then he takes the drink offerings and he has this renovation or rejuvenation or refocus or transformation perhaps is the best word where the drink offering now becomes his blood shed and don't you love this phrase once and for all for the remission of sin and from that moment on in terms of the Christian movement never again is Passover celebrated it's now Eucharist because the Passover is complete Passover has been finished Jesus said it on the cross, it is finished. 
And so Jesus would transform Passover into the Eucharist. And in 50 days, he would also transform Pentecost because you see the spirit of the law was really what Jesus emphasized. I told you earlier that the people were under significant bondage to the letter of the law and a bunch of stuff had been added. It's like a tumbleweed, it just keeps rolling. And unless you stop it and pick off all the stuff that God added on that God never intended, it just gets more burdensome and more burdensome and, and, and more difficult to understand and more difficult to apply. And so one of the things we find again going back to Matthew chapter 5 is that Jesus is going through this kind of divestiture of having to live under burdensome laws and taking people back to the spirit of the law. You see throughout Matthew 5, 6, 7, he says, you have heard it said, and he describes several various aspects of the law, but I say to you, and each time he does that, he's trying to return the people to the Mount Sinai implication that it's not necessarily that which is written on tablets, but that which is written on the heart. And the writing on the heart, while the tablets were written, we believe, by the power of the Holy Spirit, by God's messenger, which is the Holy Spirit, what God wants to do is to send his Holy Spirit to write his law and the intent of his law on our hearts. And so it moves from the letter of the law to the spirit of the law when we come to Pentecost. And when the spirit is poured out, no longer is it us attempting to keep every jot and tittle but it's more focused on the heart and motivation. It's not the what of the law, but it's the why of the law. And again, we're reminded, and it's not even necessarily completed in the why of the law, it's the who of the law, that in Jesus Christ, all these things are fulfilled. And so during these 50 days between essentially the, the, uh, the Passover and the crucifixion and the resurrection, all the way over here to Pentecost and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit where the Holy Spirit had been with them, now would be in them and would write the law of God and, and, and empower them to live in keeping with God's purposes for their lives. Not only were those feasts changed, but more importantly, people were changed. And during this 50-day period, and it's an interesting study if you're looking for a focus, is to go through the Gospels and pick out in Acts and some other references where, where these 50 days are mentioned in Scripture in terms of the number of lives that are transformed. Because you see, it's not just the transformation of some kind of feast or some kind of celebration. Ultimately, the Messiah came to transform people, to change us so that we could be enabled and be empowered to be everything that God had tended us, intended us to be. You and I were essentially conceived in the heart and mind of God at creation. The Bible says that he looked down through all of time. He ordered the days of our lives, counted the hairs on our head. He knew exactly who we'd be. And so you and I now stand in that wonderful reality that God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Okay? He really does. And what has to happen, though, for that plan to be fully implemented and fully realize is that we need to be transformed. We need to experience Pesach, Passover. We need to have the lamb slain from the foundation of time, the blood of the lamb that essentially is the sacrifice for our sins and so we know that our sins are forgiven. But we also need, and that's why Jesus said to them, tarry in Jerusalem so that the spirit of the law can be fully imbued in you so that you can live according to my purposes for your life. We cannot do it in the flesh. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. Joel prophesied that the spirit would be poured out upon all flesh, so all of us are included, old and young, uh, rich and poor, male and female. There's no limitation on the outpouring of the Holy Spirit that comes at Pentecost to write the laws on our hearts and enable us and empower us for his particular purposes. And so this wonderful promise of Pentecost is a promise of ultimate transformation that begins with redemption. And then in that redemption covenant comes the promise because we know we're saved not by anything we have done, 
No man can say Jesus is Lord except by the Father and the Spirit's enablement. And we know that we can't fulfill his purposes without giving ourselves fully to the Holy Spirit. So for me, the exciting thing about <clears throat> this particular period that we call uh, the season uh, between uh, Passover and Pentecost is this wonderful revelation of lives that are changed. Feasts have been changed. Jesus said, I've come to fulfill the law. He said on the cross, it is finished. But when he said it was finished, it was just the beginning of the transformation. And we don't have time today to go into all of the lives that were changed, but just let me just list a few of them. If you have an interest, you can go back and pick these up in your own study. Mary and the other women, the devastation of the crucifixion and the death of Christ. And then as they come and find the empty grave and are told he is not here, he is risen. And then Mary herself confronts the risen Lord, thinking he's the gardener, and turns out to be her Rabboni, her teacher. And she's transformed from that particular moment on. We've got two disciples, they're not named. We're not sure if they're a part of the, tw the 11 or they're another larger group. We know when the upper room occurs, there's about 120 folk that are gathered. So they may be part of those that were, were with Jesus from the beginning when uh, Peter uh, stands up on the, uh, in, before Pentecost and suggests that Matthias needs to be appointed to take Judas's place. We know there are about 120 folk. So it's possible that, that these two are part of that group. And they then are confronted by a stranger and he wonders what they're talking about. And of course they're talking about the Passover lamb. And then he begins to open the word to them. And then over a table, reminiscent of the Eucharist now, the breaking of bread, the offering, he's suddenly revealed to them and they realize it's the Lord, and he moves on. We have other stories. We love it when, I love it when the, the, the disciples are up in the upper room and they're locked away for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears to them and breathes on them and says, fear not, receive the Holy Spirit. And uh, everybody's there but Thomas. And Thomas probably worked for JPL. Um, <laughs> he was one of these more scientifically-minded kind of people. And while he wanted to believe, he needed some evidence. If he didn't work for JPL, he was probably from Missouri. You know, he just needed to be shown. He said, unless I can put my fingers in the wounds, I'm not gonna believe. And so Jesus complies. Don't you love it the way the Lord meets us? This is gonna be one of the themes today I want you to carry away from you after this service. The Lord meets us right where we are. Meets us right where we are. And so Thomas is met where he is. You want tangible scientific proof? He doesn't have to stick his hands and fingers in the wounds. He says, my Lord and my God. And there are several other stories that basically talk about this period between, between Passover and Pentecost being not only a transformation of festivals and traditions, but most significantly a transformation of people. And when we pick up the story in John 21, we find that there's one person who still is in need of transformation. It's Peter. What an incredible story this is. I love this particular story. I've had the privilege of doing several teaching missions to Israel. And one of the things that I love to do when we have the opportunity to do it uh, is to come and, and get people up early and go to uh, the shore of Gennesaret, Galilee, the Sea of Galilee. Uh, there's a small Roman Catholic uh, monastery uh, uh, that celebrates this particular story. And we're allowed to go out on the rocky beach there. And, and as, the, as the sun starts to rise and the mist rises off, uh, the lake, uh, we, we begin to tell this story of Peter. And, 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 and here's Peter, and, and we, we're introduced to him right in the middle of this period. It, it could be about 40 days in. We're not sure exactly. The, the exact timing isn't that critical. But it's been a while. It's been a while since the crucifixion and the resurrection. And Peter is evidencing his disconnect. He's not sure if he should fit. He's not sure if he's really belongs anymore. He started out well. You remember way back in, in the Gospel of Matthew uh, when uh, Jesus is asking the disciples uh, about the nature of how people are talking about him. And, you know, he says, who do people say that I am? Are, are they getting the message that I'm the Messiah? 
And he said, well, some think you're this prophet and some think you're that prophet and others think you might be this and others think you might be that. And, and uh, Jesus says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter raises his hand. <laughs> oh, 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 I got it. You're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And at that moment, Simon gets a name change. There's a lot of significance here to names in the Hebrew culture. And when somebody's name is changed, it's very, very dramatic and very significant. And Jesus says, no longer will you be called Simon, son of John or son of Jonah, sometimes it's translated, but you shall be called Peter, Petros, rock. And upon this rock, I will build my church. Now again, just a little systematic theology. Uh, for, for many theologians, the belief is it wasn't Jesus saying he was going to build his church on Peter, but he was going to build his church on the confession of Peter. The cornerstone of our faith is that Jesus is the Messiah. And we only can declare that when the Holy Spirit reveals it to us, that he is the chief cornerstone, right? And so the confession of faith is what Peter was commended for. That would be the rock of our salvation, the cornerstone of our salvation, that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Christ. But he no sooner gets that right when Jesus goes on to remind the disciples because they're having this identity crisis about the nature of the Messiah. Somehow they've forgotten Isaiah again. And they're still hoping for an overturning of the Roman government and getting those Sadducees and Pharisees, who often were sad and were never fair, helping they would get their comeuppance. And so he says, no, 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 I've got to suffer and die. And Peter says, absolutely not. That's totally unacceptable. I'm sorry, Lord, that's not going to happen. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. I must do what the Father has declared is necessary to be the Passover lamb. Before Jesus could become king of kings, he had first to become the Passover lamb. And so we see this happening to Peter off and on. In the upper room discourse, we see Peter uh, you know, wrestling with this messianic vision, which is different than his. Jesus decides to wash the disciples' feet, and Peter says, absolutely not. There's no way the king of kings is gonna wash my feet. And Jesus has to rebuke him and say, just a minute, Peter, if I don't wash you, then you have no place with me in the kingdom of heaven. And then Peter overreacts. Don't you just love Peter's kind of pendulum kind of personality? Well, in that case, give me a bath. And Jesus said, you don't get it, Peter. You don't get it. Really, what you need is for that part of you that touches the world on a regular basis to be washed and to be cleansed. And then he's in the midst of this conversation after Judas has left, and again, Jesus is talking about that he must die and um, that he must suffer, and uh, that the sad thing is is that he'll suffer alone, that all of you, he says, will betray me, abandon me. And Peter says, not me, Lord. The rest of these wimps may wimp out on you, but you can count on me. And Jesus has to say, Peter, 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 before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me. Before the rooster crows, you will have denied me three times. And Peter ponders that. They get into the Garden of Gethsemane, the anguish of Jesus praying about this messianic vision out of Isaiah, being the suffering lamb first before he could become the king of kings. And he cries out and, and essentially says, if this cup could pass from me, please, Lord, take it away. But nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And then Judas shows up with a contingent of guards from the palace and from the temple, and he's betrayed. And Peter again, do you see the pattern? Peter again tries to bring the kingdom to pass through military means. Most Kingdoms are overturned and set up through military conquest. Now, Solomon was pretty gifted at doing a lot of things through negotiation, but most of the Old Testament shows that kingdoms were turned 
because of military conquest. So what does he do? He pulls out a sword and lops off the high priest's servant's ear, and Jesus has to rebuke him again. So you get this flip-flop of Peter. And then this awful denial. By the way, I, if you are not watching it, and I would encourage you to watch the, uh, the Bible story AD, which Roma Downey and her husband have been putting on. Uh, the, this couple has been very much committed to somehow getting the word of God into the public arena. And now they've moved it onto CBS on Sunday nights. Powerful story of Jesus' crucifixion. But what's so incredibly anguishing is the portrayal, and I think it's going to be on again uh, tonight at 8 o'clock before the next uh, hour is on at 9, where Peter denies Jesus, the anguish and the anger, where he denies his Lord, and then the rooster crows. And so you've got Peter, he's, he's not sure if he fits or not. He's kind of on the edges of things. He doesn't know if he belongs. And he's there at the resurrection, the empty tomb, but doesn't quite get it. And, and in, toward the end of Mark, where, where the angel says, you know, Jesus is risen, don't look for the dead among the living, uh, go into uh, Galilee, he goes before you, and, and he says something very interesting. In a couple of versions of the scriptures in the manuscript that I was looking at, it says, go tell his disciples and Peter. Whoa. Whoa, is that evidence of inclusion or exclusion? Could be seen as exclusion, no longer a disciple, because he's denied his Lord three times. And by the way, in Jewish culture, the way you broke a covenant was to publish it three times, that you didn't want this contract anymore. Divorces were set up that way. There were, there were three phases in a divorce proceeding in order for you to get the get, as it's called, in order to get the certificate of divorce. Three things have to happen in terms of public declaration and public performance before essentially the divorce is finalized. And so it could be an exclusion, but it also could be the angel saying, there's hope of inclusion. Go tell his disciples and don't forget to tell Peter, he's welcome to the party too. He's welcome. So we come to John 21 and what we have here is Peter essentially on the edge of things. He doesn't know if he's in or out. We don't know how long it's been that they've been there in the Sea of Galilee waiting for Jesus. Uh, perhaps it's been a couple of days. But often when people feel they've failed at something they've been given, they'll return back to something where they once were successful. And this is what happens to Peter, I believe. He was a pretty good fisherman, very successful at it for the most part. Had abandoned it three years earlier when Jesus had said to him, I no longer want you to be a fisher of fish. I want you to be a fisher of men. And so he'd given up the fleet management and had become a follower of Jesus. And Peter now isn't sure where he fits. And so he says, well, and, and again, I don't, I'm not a psychologist nor the son of a psychologist, not related to Sigmund Freud, so I can't figure all this stuff out. But I kind of get this sense that perhaps Peter may have been returning to something where he at least felt he was successful. He says, I'm going fishing. The wonderful thing about the other disciples is this important truth in terms of the fellowship of the church of Jesus Christ, is that friends don't let other friends go fishing alone. Isn't that wonderful truth? Friends don't let other friends go fishing alone. And they say, okay, Peter, we're going to go with you. And they fish all night, and they catch nothing. Wow. Salt in the wounds. At least I can probably survive as a fisherman. And then he's fished all night and nothing. And then there is this person on the beach, can't see through the mist. If you've been there early in the morning on the Sea of Galilee, you know, it can be quite misty. It's very hard to see the shoreline. And so there's a fire crackling. They can see that probably. They were just a few hundred yards off the shore. And uh, the, the voice on the shore calls out, Children, haven't you caught any fish? Salt in the wound again. <laughs> Somebody says, no, we haven't. And the voice says, put the net on the right side of the boat. Again, I'd love to have some time to talk about right, the right side of the boat, but they do. And instantly it's filled with fish. 
happens very quickly. It wasn't two or three or four hours. It says almost immediately it was filled. And when they get it to shore, it's 153 big ones. Don't you love that? That's the nature of fishermen. They're going to count those fish, and they're going to say it's 153 big ones. And the other thing which is so significant is that the net was not broken. Often when fishermen were out all night and they would have a catch, they would be faced with having to work after they'd taken care of the catch on shore for three, four, or five hours before they could rest and to get some sleep by having to repair their nets because often the nets were broken. But here are 153 big fish, and the net isn't broken. And one of the disciples says, it's the Lord. It's got to be the Lord. And then Peter does a very strange thing which reveals, at least for me, from a counselor's perspective, the depth of the struggle that he's working through. He does what we would say in the Coast Guard is the last thing you should do. And that is he puts all of his clothes back on. Because he was stripped, probably just with a loincloth, perhaps even naked, fishing, but he puts all of his clothes back on. And from a counseling perspective, that could indicate that, that he's ashamed. There's a sense of embarrassment there. He wants to cover himself. And so he wades ashore. And when he gets there, he discovers that there's a fire and fish are cooking on it. And Jesus essentially begins a dialogue with Peter after they've had their breakfast together. One of the truths that this story reinforces for me is that no matter how much you may have failed the Lord, no matter how great, you have failed to step up to what he's asked of you. No matter how you've stumbled, no matter how much you think you have missed God's best for your life, is that Jesus Christ, the love of God expressed in the Messiah, will go to any length necessary to demonstrate that he still loves you and still has a plan for his life. Because you see this incident is deja vu all over again. You remember when Peter was first called? He'd fished all night and caught nothing. And so here he is, returning to fishing, fishes all night, catches nothing. Jesus, if necessary, will take Peter and all of the Peters and every generation since right back to the beginning. He'll start all over again with us because he loves us. His love will never let us go. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Shall wickedness, famine, peril, or sword, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loves us and gave himself for us. And so Peter's beginning to get, I think, the message. And then Jesus goes into this interesting dialogue. He says, um, Simon, son of John, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Quite an interesting verse for a couple of reasons. One is he uses Peter's old name, not his new name. He's speaking into the fact that, yeah, Peter, you blew it, man. You rejected me. In essence, if you go back to the divorce traditions, you publicly divorced me. And so you no longer carry the name I gave you. Isn't that powerful? And so he says, Simon, son of John, and other translations say son of Jonah, which is another translation of John. It could have been interesting, you know, I was sharing with our sister here before service uh, about uh, Jonah a little bit. You know, Jonah tried to get away from God. He didn't want to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And so God sent a big fish. So Jonah was consumed by a fish, and Peter was reconsumed by fishing. Just an interesting parallel. Later on, by the way, when we get to Acts 10, Peter would ex exhibit the spirit of Jonah, not wanting to take the gospel to the Ninevites, the Gentiles. And he'd have to let down this sheet and correct Peter. Because Peter said, I don't eat anything that's unclean. And the voice of God says, don't you ever call what I have cleansed unclean. Isn't that good news? And cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. And so there's this kind of indication that, okay, Peter, you're, you're on the outs. There's no question, but let's go through a process. Let me begin by asking, do you love me more than these? Possible he could have been referring to the disciples, which would have been more salt 
in the wound, more conviction about what Peter had done to abandon the Lord. Because that night at Passover, he essentially said, I won't leave you. All these other guys don't love you as much as I do. And then the next day, he denies his Lord. It's possible that's an interpretation. Another interpretation was, do you love me more than these fish? That's a possible interpretation because he was not to be a fisher of fish, he was to be a fisher of men. Was he consumed by fish and fishing? Or was he going to be consumed by his call to be one who followed hard after Christ as a fisher of men? Second time Jesus says to him, and Peter responds and says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Second time Jesus says, you know, do you, do you love me? And he says, well, yes, Lord, I do love you. And Jesus gives him a commission. Even with that first response, Jesus is slowly restoring him to his ministry. Feed my sheep. Okay, I've got something for you to do. You don't necessarily have to be on the outs. If you love me, I've got something for you to do. Second time, it's feed my lambs. The third time, it's feed my sheep again. But what's interesting is the third time the scripture says Peter was grieved. And I've thought a lot about that. Why would Peter be grieved? Is it possible that the grieving was a reminder that having publicly denied Christ three times, now the public confession of Christ three times was a reminder of what he had failed to do responsibly, possibly. But I think the meaning in terms of what most Greek scholars believe is found in the interpretations of the words used for love in this passage. When Jesus first asks the question, do you love me more than these? He's using the highest form of love in the Greek language, four levels of love in the Greek language, and he uses agapeo, the highest form, God-like love, sacrificial love, love that's willing to pay any price. Peter interestingly responds with a different word, according to some Greek manuscripts. He responds, yes, Lord, you know I phileo you. That has nothing to do with fish. Phileo is Philadelphia. It essentially has that construct of I love you like a brother. I have brotherly love for you. You're like family love. And Jesus says, okay, that's fine. Second time Jesus says, do you agapeo me? Do you agape me? Peter says, Lord, I think I've already answered the question. I love you like a brother would love another brother. The third time, the Greek manuscripts indicate, seem to indicate that Jesus changed the word for love. And the third time he says, Peter, or Simon, do you truly phileo me? Do you love me like a brother? And commentators believe that this was what kind of got Peter's attention, that Jesus would be willing because of how much he loves Peter, to come down to his level when Peter couldn't come up to his. There's an old wonderful gospel quartet song written by uh, the Gaither group, and by the way, the author of that particular song I'm about to tell you about was in our service this morning. He used to sing with the Gaither vocal band and wrote several of the Gaither music uh, pieces. I talked to him at length after the service. And that one piece that I love to sing myself is that uh, he came down to my level when I couldn't come up to his. He came down to my level when I couldn't come up to his. Billy Graham would pick that up in his crusades back in the 50s with that wonderful altar invitation, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me. O Lamb, Passover, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. And Peter realized that Jesus' love for him could never be broken. No matter what he had done, no matter what failures, no matter what betrayals, Jesus was going to love him to the end. It says that in Scripture, that having loved his disciples, he loved them to the end. We talked about that a couple of months ago when I shared with you, that wonderful truth that Jesus is there at the end. He loved them to the end. And Peter was aware that he had been restored. But Jesus, kind of in keeping with Isaiah chapter six, in responding to Peter's 
willingness to love him with what he have, and that's the key in terms of discovering and rediscovering what God has for us in our lives. He'll just take what we can give him. He doesn't ask us to come up to some perfection level. He'll meet us right where we are. That's what I think this sequence means in John 21. But Jesus wants us to know what he's getting into. And so he says, just a minute here. The reason that you've been so flip-floppy, pendulum, is because you've got a spiritual Achilles heel. And that spiritual Achilles heel that trips you up over and over again is your own sense of wanting to control your own destiny, master of your own universe. And so I need to speak into that very pointedly. And he said, before you go on with me, you need to know this, that that self-will is going to be completely taken away from you. You're going to have no self-control. You're, going to, you're not going to be able to control your own destiny. You're going to be totally dependent upon other people. And then we see the old Peter flare up again. You know, he reacts to that. Well, okay. He looks over at John, the teacher's pet, you know, the favorite one. You can imagine how John had to deal with that kind of designation. And he says, yeah, okay, if that's what I have to do, but I assume you've got the same thing in store for this guy. And Jesus has to rebuke Peter again. Isn't it wonderful that we don't have to be perfect for God to continue to love us in Christ and to continue to use us in Christ? And Jesus says, look, really what I do with John, if, if I intend for him not to die until I come back again, then that's between me and John. You follow me. You do what I've asked you to do. And interestingly, just as a quick sidebar, that's where the first rumor mill got started in the church. You'll see in the remainder of John 21, it says that the saying went abroad, that John was going to live forever, but that wasn't what he meant. John has to make that clarification right at the end of the gospel. That wasn't what Jesus was saying at all. And so we have this wonderful truth that Peter is restored. God meets him. Jesus meets him right where he is, despite the failures, despite all of the things that had tripped him up. And now aware of the fact that the main reason he trips up the Achilles heel, Satan's arrow in his heel, is his ego and his need to be in control of his own destiny. He then 10 days later approximately shows up in a whole new light and he becomes the leader of the church. And God uses him to birth in the New Testament. Pentecost and the first fruits of the harvest are the result of this failing Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost. What good news for you and me. And I don't know where you are today in terms of your own journey, in terms of the things that you've been struggling with. Maybe you're here today and, and you feel, wow, I missed it. You know, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, 50 years ago, God had a call in my life and, and I rejected it. I stepped away. And ever since, I've, I've just kind of felt on the edges of things. I've never really felt at the center of what God has for me. Maybe you're a person who has failed the Lord and you didn't obey the spirit of the living God and your lifestyle took you in directions that denied the Lord, took you into relationships, took you into sin, let's call it for what it is. And that sin has become Satan's instrument to tell you a lie, that you've missed God's best, that you're gonna to have to settle for second best or third best, that my calling on your life and Jesus' calling on your life can never be fulfilled. If that's you, take heart because the love of God will pursue you like the hound of heaven. Can you smell the fish cooking? Can, can you see the flicker of the flame of hope on the shoreline? Can you hear Jesus asking the question again, I don't care what you've done in the past. All I need to know is right now, do you love me? And I'll take whatever you can give me. And if you'll say yes, Lord, then I'll begin to work in you and transform you. By the way, when we get to First and Second Peter, when Peter uses the word love, it's always agape. It's always agapeo. It's an amazing thing when he talks about the love of God shed abroad in our hearts and his love for God. He's gone from 
brotherly love to self-sacrificing love, which then would empower him to overcome his besetting sin of self-centeredness so that he could die even as Jesus predicted. And he would, tradition says, asked to be crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to die exactly the same way his Lord did. Good news, he loves you. Good news, he wants to break bread with you, even this morning. You don't have to wait to Pentecost. Whatever day this is into the 50 days, this can be your day to reignite God's call in your life. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for Peter. Boy, how we identify with him and how we sense so many places in our own lives where we see Peter expressed. But Lord, for your good people this day who are here because they want to meet the Lord, they're here because they want to worship you. They're here because they want to continue in a long obedience in the same direction. They're here because they're hoping they will hear something that will reassure them that you're not done with them yet. And particularly for those whom Satan has been lying to, who've said because of their denials, because of their failures, because of their sin, God's best for them is now out of reach. Would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, come in a Pentecost fashion Speak deep into their spirit, spirit speaking to spirit, to assure them that they are loved by you and all you ask in return is that they will give you all of the love they have to follow you. So in the closing moments of this service, I pray, Jesus, once again, send your Holy Spirit and may there be in the lives of each of us a fresh understanding that you have a call and that call is anchored to your love and that love will never fail. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Good. Let's stand together and sing these words and let them be our prayer today. May the mind of Christ my Savior live in me from day to day by his love and power controlling all I do and ago I had the privilege of being off that little beach where these fish were fried and it was a very sobering place um, and a sobering moment in exploring my own calling and as Dave has reminded us today God's inviting you to explore your own calling back to him or maybe even for the first time we'd love to pray with you pray for you up 
To my left, your right, a number of our pastors and our prayer team will be here. We'll stay as long as you want to be here because uh, we want to finish doing business with God. And the good news is you don't have to get all dressed up fancy and swim in the water for 100 yards to get there. You can just wander down the aisle. And we also have a prayer room if you'd like more privacy out that door to the side. Out to your left and my right, our connecting point, uh, if you're looking for a family and, and you're just trying to say, how do I walk out this follow me call from Jesus? We do it in community. The connecting banner over there, you'll find some folks who will help explain what goes on in the life of Lake and ways that you can find a small group, a mid-sized community, places to serve, uh, because that's what it means to be on this journey together. We do this together. It's our tradition on communion weekends uh, to have a benevolence offering. And because we folded communion into our Good Friday service this year, we did not take one. So today as you leave, our ushers are going to be at the door and we're going to invite you to give to our benevolence offering. That's for this family, for those in our family. I keep reading the economy is getting better, but I know a lot in our family who are suffering significantly economically still. And today that's what we do when we put some money in the benevolence offering. It goes just for those benefits exclusively um, that folks are in need of that are not part of our regular budget. So I encourage you to give generously. As we go today, I'm going to invite Dave to come back up. Dave, thank you for opening God's word for us today. Um, thank, thank you for uh, demonstrating what an available instrument to God is and um, how you, he has used you to here today and this weekend. So thank you, brother. We're glad to have you and Nancy as part of this family. Would you leave us with a benediction, some good words? This wonderful uh, promise from Scripture, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before his throne with exceeding great joy. But uh, perhaps you have fallen and you're in need of that restoring sense of God's love. Today has already been mentioned, that's available to you. You're never too old to find God's best. Moses was 80. I lived in Kentucky for several years and Colonel Saunders was 80 when he started Kentucky Fried Chicken. Just think of what God could do through you. <laughs> so may the peace of Christ and may the promise of a love that will never let you go be with you both now and for eternity. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. Go in peace.